Welcome. This is Anastasia Glova bringing you the Cato Daily Podcast. Be sure to log on to our website, www.cato.org, for a full archive of our podcast as well as many other audio offerings. A forum at the Cato Institute on Thursday addressed the changes that will soon take place on the political landscape as the 110th Congress begins its session in January. With me, I have Newsday columnist and political analyst James Pinkerton, who spoke at the forum. Why don't we begin by sharing some of your observations about this election? Did anything surprise you? Well, I think the big victor in the election was the Reagan Democrats. I think that the relentless pattern of American politics has been that the swing vote is almost always socially conservative and economically populist. They believe in family values. They believe in patriotism. They hate the thought of losing foreign wars. They are suspicious of big government, but not ideologically hostile to big government. They're not born hating big government. They just sort of think of government as sort of a tool that may or may not help them get a job and get an education. They swing. They swing back and forth between the two parties based on whichever party seems to be best serving them, or at least ill-serving them at the time. So sometimes they vote Democratic, as in 1992 or 1996, and for the most of the last dozen years or so, they've been pretty solidly Republican. But the Republicans in 2006 had clearly flunked the test on Iraq, on Katrina relief, again, where I think these swing voters don't have an ideological opposition to government relief. They're not morally offended by spending. They just they think if it is being spent, there ought to be some minimum of competence, which they didn't see in Katrina relief. And they have a natural disgust with corruption. And to the extent that Republicans looked more corrupt in 2006 with Mark Foley, Abramoff, and so on, I think the swing voters just sort of decided to flush the toilet on the Republican majority. Now, there are a lot more centrist Democrats in Congress now, and they're going to be spoken for by a San Francisco liberal like Nancy Pelosi. How do you think that dynamic is going to play out? Well, I think that is quite a a dilemma. I mean, Nancy Pelosi has a pretty solidly left-wing record in Congress. And of course, San Francisco is arguably the most liberal political constituency in the country. On the other hand, She is a politician by background. I mean, she was born into elective politics in a place very much different than San Francisco in in Maryland. Her father was the mayor of Baltimore and a congressman. Her brother was the mayor of Baltimore. I mean, she's seen yeasty, gritty urban politics of a kind much different than San Francisco's all her life. And I think contrary to the expectations of Republicans and critics and so on, and in the last couple of years since she took over as Democratic leader, she has done a pretty good job of making the Democrats seem centrist and normal. And, and she's avoided excessively talking about the Iraq war. I mean, she's obviously no fan of the war. She voted against it. She's called Bush any number of names associated with the Iraq war. But she hasn't forced a kind of orthodoxy on the Democratic caucus. And so the question then is, now that they're in charge, will that change? Will the latent leftism of Democrats like John Conyers, incoming chairman of the Judiciary Committee, will that emerge? We'll see. As Democratic leader, Nancy Pelosi did a pretty good job of downplaying issues where the Democrats look to the left of the country, like, quote, cut and run in Iraq, for example, which obviously a lot of Democrats would love to do. Uh, But Pelosi said no, and defying her own constituents back home in San Francisco, she said, we're not going to talk about that much. We'll crash Bush, and we'll send John Murtha out there to attack the war. 
But we won't make that a point of dogma for the Democrats as they look at the 06 election. We'll talk instead about narrower, smaller issues, minimum wage, health care, college tuition, and so on, that pretty much all Democrats and most moderates and independents sort of like. That's the point about the Reagan Democrats. The Reagan Democrats win every election. In the end, those centrist, moderate concerns, uh, bread and butter concerns, uh, prevail. Now, now that they're in charge, as they look to the 110th Congress, the challenge will be for Nancy Pelosi to go to the left-wing elements in her own party, like John Conyers, the incoming chairman of the Judiciary Committee, who's made it clear that he'd love to censure or impeach President Bush, or Russ Feingold, who wants an immediate pullout. He's obviously in the Senate, but nonetheless, those sorts of Democrats who loom large in Congress will be chairman of some kind of committee or subcommittee. That's her challenge, and she'll have to work closely with apparently Senate incoming Majority Leader Harry Reid to present a moderate front to the voters. Because what smart Democrats will remember is that in 1946, the Republicans took over the Congress on a single two-word platform of, quote, had enough, question mark, close quote, against the New Deal Democrats, overplayed their hand badly, and were swept back out of power along with Tom Dewey. And so the Democrats, having lost the Congress in 46, won it all back in 48. And... Obviously, the Democrats now, having won the Congress in 2006, don't want to have a repeat of that. They don't want some Republican to come along in 2008 and play Harry Truman against them and win the Congress back for the Republicans. And that won't happen if they're careful, and it will happen if they're reckless. Now, Democrats have been very clear about putting middle-class economic issues front and center. Do you think that Republicans will cooperate? I think Republicans, if they're smart, will have no choice. I would hate to go into the 2008 election voting against some modest increase in the minimum wage. I would hate to go into the 2008 election opposing some modest effort on college tuition, access to health care, and so on. On the other hand, I would hate to be a Democrat and get stuck voting for some substantial tax increase. I think that it's possible that some raising the top rate, which is kind of a religion with the Democrats, that might get through Congress. Uh, The president might sign it or somehow let it become into law. I think other issues that are important to the economy, like Sarbanes-Oxley reform, Well, first of all, the Republicans who controlled the Congress when I think this disastrous piece of legislation was enacted in 2002, Mike Oxley, the chairman of the committee who created this monstrosity, is no longer in Congress. There'll be a lobbyist somewhere, no doubt, but nonetheless, he's not in Congress anymore. Meanwhile, as the reality that 24 of the top 25 IPOs around the world have occurred outside of the United States since Sarbanes-Oxley, as those things sink into people... And you see op-eds calling for Sarbanes-Oxley reform that have been signed by people like Chuck Schumer, the Democratic senator from New York, who obviously is riding high right now, having just helped the Democrats win the Senate back. John Thornton, who's a former chairman of Goldman Sachs. I think he's now the chairman of the Brookings Institution. And Republicans who are sort of very centrist figures like Michael Bloomberg. All these people have had op-eds or signed or co-signed op-eds in the Wall Street Journal the last few days on the importance of Sarbanes-Oxley reform. So if there's ever an issue where people of goodwill who want the U.S. economy to flourish and thrive should get together, it would be that. And that'll be an early test of Speaker Pelosi, Senator Reid, President Bush, and Secretary Paulson. Can they sit around and cook up some prudential reform? Now, foreign policy has been a real lightning rod issue in this campaign. So with Rumsfeld out and Democrats in, how do you think Iraq policy is going to change? Well, I think that the genius of the American system is that when a president, and by definition, when the president gets in a jam, the country's in a jam, there's a bipartisan desire to solve the problem. I mean, there's plenty of partisans who would love to see Bush suffer, but they'd be making America suffer too if the war drags on the way it is. And 
that will please some extreme partisans, but most Americans say our people are dying. We can't have this. We want a solution. And so I think that the president showed very good instincts, having made a mistake in going in the Iraq war in the first place and having been stubborn about it for the last three and a half years. When he got a, quote, thumping, unquote, as he put it in this press conference, uh, he took pretty decisive action. He got rid of Don Rumsfeld, who was probably the last major architect of the war still inside the administration. And he showed a certain willingness, I mean, not over much, but a certain willingness to listen to what the bipartisan Iraq study group, the so-called Baker-Hamilton Commission, which is five Republicans and five Democrats, led by two very respected figures, former Secretary of State Baker and former House International Relations Committee Chairman Hamilton. If they can come up with some solution that seems plausible, I feel very encouraged that President Bush will move in that direction. He'll try and do it without admitting a mistake, and that's okay. And he'll try and do it without America being catastrophically defeated, which I think is also wise. But I do think that bipartisanship is going to prevail on that issue. And I think that Reid and Pelosi both have said, look, we're going to change direction on Iraq. I think the American people knew that and voted for them, not to be defeated, but to change direction. And so I'm pretty optimistic that something will come out of that. Other issues on terms of foreign affairs, trade, much more difficult. North Korea, much more difficult. But I think, frankly, in some of those issues, especially North Korea, the Democrats will enjoy being in the opposition for a while, let Bush scramble around on what to do about North Korea, nuclear proliferation, because I don't think they have a good answer either. But to put this into perspective, in the face of a 93% incumbent re-election rate, can Americans realistically expect anything to change? Well, first of all, the 93% re-election rate is down from the usual 98%. And so it's like the old joke, if your neighbor loses a job, it's a recession. If you lose your job, it's a depression. Well, plenty of politicians have had the experience of mortality. They saw 30 or so Republicans get defeated in the House and five or six Republicans get defeated in the Senate. And although, as you say, 90% or more of them made it, enough didn't. There's enough white crosses on the side of the road there to make an impression on the rest of them. The cold steel against their ribs, they felt it. They felt the angel of death pass pass over them. So I think that the survival instinct among Republican politicians is going to force them, already has forced them, to distance themselves from the kind of extreme avant-garde liberty century neoconservatism that President Bush was talking about most spectacularly in his 2005 inaugural address, which I think will go down as one of the more outrageous inaugural addresses ever given by an American president. And I think it's noteworthy that the next election after that one, the Republicans got clobbered because the American people, especially swing voters, aren't going to sit still for grand crusades to change the world. We know better, especially these days, especially in an era when eight or nine other countries are nuclear powers, when countries like China and India are clearly on the rise. The chances of us going overseas and changing the world and succeeding are very small. So if Republicans are aware that they can be defeated, they don't have a lock on re-election. If they realize that the 2008 election now looks very competitive, then I think they will enforce a kind of change. And if they don't get it from President Bush, then I think enough of them will be working with the Democrats in Congress to achieve something that looks like a body of success that they can, in fact, themselves run on as they look towards their own political futures. Now, some of the losses that Republicans took on Tuesday can fairly be blamed on an overall sense of a swamp in Washington. And Pelosi has promised to eradicate this culture of corruption. Can we take her at her word? We can take her that she promised to eradicate the culture of corruption. We can guarantee almost that there'll be some piece of legislation called the Drain the Swamp Act of 2007. I think that the realities of a powerful Washington class 
with jurisdiction over spending $3 trillion worth of federal spending each year, plus whatever you'd impute the value of regulation and tariffs and everything else being. That's such a honeypot of temptation that almost nobody, as Washington proves every year, as Milton Friedman says, if they put me in charge of all that stuff, it would corrupt me. And I think that's the point. It's too corrupting. It's too tempting. Obviously, the most extreme examples, the Jack Abramoffs, you can punish them. And the people who get caught with you know, cash in their freezer, like Congressman Jefferson of Louisiana, you can, you can catch them. But I think the normal temptation to spend more, to regulate more, that so many political scientists associated with the Cato Institute have identified as just an occupational hazard of life in Washington, which supports an issue which unfortunately has kind of faded away, term limits, and also term limits for committee chairs. I think those would be more meaningful reforms rather than another layer of red tape, which I suspect will get passed pretty quickly in a bipartisan way. To wrap up, would you care to prognosticate for 2008? Well, I think that the country remains as a center-right polity. I think that most Americans are instinctively nationalistic. They're instinctively conservative. They're suspicious of excessively big government. They have a certain sense that the culture has gotten a little too libertine, if not libertarian. And so I think that bodes well for the Republicans in terms of just the default position of where things seem now. On the other hand, in the past, the Democrats were perfectly comfortable with most of those positions. There's no law that says that the Democratic Party has to be a slave to the American Civil Liberties Union and the liberal judges. They didn't have to oppose John Roberts for the Supreme Court and Samuel Alito for the Supreme Court. Admittedly, most Americans have no idea who they are, but to the extent they heard about them, they knew about them, they say, well, these, these guys aren't bad. These are plausible conservative people who will be tough on criminals and tough on al-Qaeda and respectful of American tradition and American culture. I think that's a pretty good spot to be in. And I think that the Democrats, if they were smart, would move more in that direction as well. And the Republicans would stay exactly where they are. Although both parties, I think, have significant challenges that they've got to surmount. I definitely think that people want, and the national security of the country requires, a serious rethink of Immigration, I think it requires a serious rethink of our energy dependence, especially from Arab OPEC countries. I think that the reality of what's likely to emerge from North Korea is going to require a serious take on missile defense. I think we live in a dangerous world, and making them Democrats won't make them like us better, and we can't make them Democrats anyway. So we're left with a world full of dictators with nuclear weapons not many of whom like us, and some of whom have those missiles pointed at us. Well, in that kind of environment, I think a tough-minded homeland security policy that is willing to wiretap people and willing to be a little no-nonsense about things like a national ID card, I think that's extremely popular. It's not exactly the Cato Institute position on these issues, but it's, it's, I think, where the country is. And I think that friends of liberty, and I certainly count myself as one, are going to have to find ways to accommodate ourselves to where the country is. I mean, it's never lost on me when I'm fortunate enough to come to the Cato Institute that outside of this building is a statue of the great 18th century conservative Edmund Burke, who was a conservative who thought of himself as a friend of liberty, both. And Burke's quote, which always sticks with me when I think about politics, is he said, the task of the statesman, and we'll just have to forgive his sexism there, the task of the statesman is to channel the tides of change through the canals of custom. And you have to take new situations and deal with them as they come 
and figure out ways that preserve your principles and ideas, but accommodate the reality that the situation has changed. And Burt tried to do that with the American Revolution, with the East India Company, with the rights of the Irish, and the French Revolution, and I think did a great job, and I think that's a great model for anybody in any century as they try to look at political problems that the country faces. If you enjoyed this program, consider subscribing to Cato Audio, a dynamic 60-minute monthly recording that brings you inside the Cato Institute for highlights from exceptional one-of-a-kind lectures and events on key issues of the day presented by nationally known scholars, authors, and political leaders. Cato Audio is available on our website as well as on iTunes and audible.com.